This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi there, this is Alan Fasholt speaking, and you are listening to the 38th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. As usual, the most important thing that I have to say is, well, is to give a warm and very appreciative, heartfelt thank you to Peter, Catherine, Margot, and all the rest of the Patreon supporters who've each pledged a little bit of money every month to help cover the costs of running this show. I do all my own production, I build and operate my own servers, and while it's not hugely expensive, it isn't free. So it is quite nice to have a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of support uh, that uh, makes it easier for the show to sustain itself. If you'd like to help sponsor the show, just visit us at www.urban-astronomer.com, click on the Patreon link and follow the directions. Of course, there are also easier ways to help. You could just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or you know wherever you found the show, or just tell a friend about us. You know, even simply subscribing helps. Subscriber numbers are useful feedback to me to know that you are actually out there and listening. And you benefit as well because you never have to hope that you'll catch the episode announcements online. With a subscription, your phone does all the work for you, downloading the new episodes from all your, sh- all your podcasts automatically as they're published. It's pretty cool. Again, just head over to www.urban-astronomer.com and click the podcast button to find the subscription links for whatever platform you use. Okay, so that's the admin out of the way. Today, we will be hearing the fourth of the Scopex 2018 public lectures. This one titled Mars and its Dynamic Atmosphere and is presented by Clyde Foster. A long-time listeners of the show will recognize Clyde's name from last year when we ran the previous set of Scopex lectures. In this talk, he discusses his backyard observations of Mars and its weather patterns, which have won him global acclaim for their scientific value. After Clyde is done, we've got a special treat ready, another mission update from regular guest Clem Unger. By now, you know what this is all about, so I'll just let him speak for himself. And of course, in a few weeks' time, uh, you'll be hearing him again when we record our special um, December solstice episode. But first, Clyde Foster. Good afternoon. Uh, the volume all right at the back? Cool. Um, Mars. We're living in amazing times, um, specifically those of us that are involved in amateur planetary imaging. Um, I started being serious about this uh, despite I've had a lifelong interest in astronomy. Um, I really became involved in planetary imaging in 2014 um, when I upgraded the telescope in my home observatory. And at that time, the, um, the most suitable planet to try and image was Mars. It was shortly after opposition. So Mars, in its own way, holds a very special place uh, for me. Now, in terms of planetary imaging, we're very much living in the golden age, um, where amateurs are taking images that a few decades ago were either um, or very similar to what were taken in the largest observatories in the world. And in fact, now from our own back gardens, we're actually beating the quality of those images. Now, earlier this year, just to highlight one of the the points, um, on the 30th of April, I was taking one of my normal image sets of, um, of Mars. And the arrow points to a region where Typically, I was expecting Olympus Mons to appear. Olympus Mons is is a giant volcano on Mars. Um, It's about 600 kilometers across, 22,000 meters high, which is three times the height of Everest. And typically, when it's on the terminator like that, you would see a little bit of a a feature. So I rather glibly uh, circulated my images to the various forums, international forums that I submit my images to, Uh, stating that Olympus Mons was just rotating into view. However, a couple of comments came back during the day, and I very quickly started doing more detailed measurements, 
And um, um, so if you look at the different color channels, um, specifically this point shows quite bright in red, which is a bit of a telltale uh, sign of dust activity on, on Mars. It's something that we always keep a very close watch out for. Now, I was privileged this time last year, I was invited to a, a planetary conference in Latvia, um, the European Planetary Science Congress, and I obviously met a number of exceptionally interesting people there. One of them was um, Dr. Michael Ravine of Mellon Space Science Systems. Mellon Space Science Systems um, supply NASA with um, quite a number of the imaging uh, systems that go on the, um, on the spacecraft, the NASA spacecraft including the, the rovers on, on Mars as well. And out of interest, I, I sent him this image and, um, and said, look, have you, um, have you picked up anything? Because specifically, Mellon downloads the data on a day-to-day -day basis from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, the Marcy and the Hi-Res cameras. And um, I just dropped him the email with, uh, with the image and asked, look, have you picked anything up? And to, to my delight, um, he put me in contact with, um, with the guy that was responsible for those cameras. And he sent me, within a couple of hours, he sent me this image, which is actually the dust storm that I had imaged um, that morning. Now, this is fairly typical for, of one of the smaller storms on, on Mars. Um, across, you can see the, 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 the bar here. So typically about 450 kilometers across and maybe 300 kilometers uh, vertical. So the 300 kilometers typically is the distance from here to, um, to Harry Smith, just to give you an indication. Um, just to show how close it was to Olympus Mons, these lines here are actually the, uh, the outer reaches of, of the volcano. And you can see the flow patterns so um, it, it was understandable that there was that confusion initially, but amazing to see um, a storm of that nature. I think it highlights a couple of issues, just the interaction that we have as amateurs now with the, with the professional um, community and the way that we're able to interact um, constructively um, together. Um, but one of the, the other aspects about this is if, if you go to various databases, um, I was the only person on Earth to have imaged that storm that, that morning. So that, that obviously brings its own excitement in terms of, um, of the type of work that we're, we're doing. Just a little bit of history of, of observations of Mars. Uh, the first serious observation was put down to Christian Hagens, a, a Dutch um, astronomer. And he was actually able to pick up one of the dark features on, on Mars, which we now know as, as Certus Major. Um, but over the years, as telescope technology developed, um, we were able to pick up on the, the polar caps, and obviously we picked up changes that were taking place on the planet. So the features weren't necessarily staying the same year after, after year. And in 1877, um, Schiaparelli reported these thin lines um, that, um, that he supposedly observed, and he called them canale which got translated into English as, as canals. And of course, this um, immediately triggered the, the response, well, are we talking about real canals here? And uh, Percival Lowell also picked up on, on this later um, in that century. And he, he pretty much pushed the, the philosophy that we were dealing with intelligent um, civilization on Mars. And they were responsible for these canals. So we certainly had these romantic uh, notions developing around the, the red planet, uh, which retained interest. But in uh, 1965, after an eight, eight-month trip, Mariner 4 did a flyby of the planet. And we got our first close look at the, um, at the features on Mars. And contrary to all these uh, romantic notions, it, uh, it was shown to be a very dry, barren, desert-like and crater-covered planet. Nowadays, we're privileged to have a, a wide range of, of technological assets currently at Mars, both orbiters and, uh, and rovers. Some of the orbiters have been there since 2001. 
Um, and we've had the more recent ones, such as the ExoMars, um, if you can, can recall, um, that orbiter actually had a, a landing craft, Chaparelli, which uh, crash-landed, unfortunately, um, and was destroyed. Um, but there is a follow-up mission in, in 2020, which is planned. And then we've currently got two active rovers, the Opportunity and Curiosity. Just to give you an indication of the size, there's Curiosity, a model of Curiosity, and there's um, Opportunity. Um, I'll come back to Opportunity a little bit later, because unfortunately... Um, that, uh, that rover was negatively impacted by the giant dust storm that took place a couple of months back, and as yet, there's been no more contact from the rover. Now, these uh, spacecraft, the orbiters, the, the rovers are sending back a huge amount of information, so the data that we're getting has gone exponential, and yet there's so much still to be learnt about the, the planet and, and so many secrets that it's um, still holding. Uh, and in amongst all the data, we're getting these amazing images, landscape images of, of um, the planet, which could be quite easily any desert on, on Earth. Um, and one of the exciting things to me is when I'm taking my, my Mars images is to pick up um, on the rover sites. Now... Um, Gale Crater is, is a little dark spot up here. Um, this is Sirtis Major, the, the dark feature that I mentioned a little bit earlier. So this projector isn't maybe giving the best, uh, best uh, rendition of the images. Um, but there's a small dark spot here, which is Gale Crater. And, and whenever I'm imaging that, I know that that little rover is, is down there. And it's, it's incredible to think that possibly in my lifetime, um, I may be taking images of Mars, looking down on locations where people are. One of the, the major findings that, uh, that the data has pointed to is that in the distant past, um, in ancient Mars, and I'm going back three and a half to four billion years now, um, it appears that Mars was a, had a very wet climate, um, and in fact had oceans in the, in the northern hemisphere. This is the North Polar Cap. And uh, the indications from the data that we have is that uh, there was a substantial ocean in that, uh, in that hemisphere. Um, also that the atmosphere was much more dense in those days and subsequently that's been stripped off um, by the solar wind over the, the billions of, of years. Right, just a quick overview of the planet. Mars is the fourth planet from the Sun. Uh, we've obviously got the inner planets, which we refer to as the terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then the four gas giants in the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and, um, and Neptune. My personal interest has been on, on Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, but I have been um, asked to get involved in a number of projects not least of all last year on Uranus, there was um, equatorial storms. And it's just incredible to think that amateurs are able to contribute data and, and actually capture those storms from their own back gardens um, in, in today's world. Um, Mars is just over half the size of the, the Earth. Um, it's the second smallest planet in the solar system behind, behind Mercury. And it's about twice the size of the, the Moon. Um, and comparable a little bit larger than some of the, the largest uh, satellites in the solar system, namely Titan at Saturn and Ganymede, the largest at, uh, at Jupiter. And we've obviously got dwarf planet Pluto, substantially smaller. Uh, Mars orbits the, the Sun about one and a half times the distance of, of Earth, and as such, obviously, the Martian year for it to go once around the sun is substantially longer than, than Earth year. In fact, very close to twice the, um, the length of an Earth year. Uh, so we have 365 days on Earth, 687 days, uh, Earth days for a, for a Martian year. Uh, the, the Martian day, interestingly enough, is very, very similar to the length of a day on, on Earth. Uh, it's about 40 minutes longer than, um, than an Earth day. So it's quite interesting on a night-to-night on -night basis when you're, you're doing progressive Mars imaging, 
you've got that small rotation at Mars relative to the previous evening. So you get a very nice comparison, and obviously if something happens the one night, invariably you're, you're able to pick up uh, what's happening there the following night as well, and, and follow it over a couple of days. Now, one of the interesting things which impacts significantly on, on Mars weather um, is the orbit of Mars. Um, now, with Earth, um, if you look at the orbit of Earth, the closest that goes to the Sun is 91 million uh, miles or 147 million kilometers. And the furthest it goes is 152 million. So it's almost a perfect circle, very close to being a, a circular orbit, um, with only a 3% difference um, between closest and, and furthest. With Mars, however, um, the closest is 207 million, and uh, the furthest is 243. So there's actually a 20% difference. And you can imagine that um, when Mars is closest to, to the Sun, we're getting a substantially higher um, amount of solar energy being captured by the planet. Um, and in fact, that happens during the southern summer um, on a regular basis. So you can understand that the southern summer is, uh, is more intense than the northern summer when, when Mars is um, further from the sun. And interestingly enough, invariably this region here from southern spring to southern summer, where Mars is closest to the sun and, and is getting the most energy, um, that is the well-known as the, the, the classical dust storm season, which is, is understandable. This elliptical orbit of Mars also impacts significantly on how we see Mars from, from Earth. Um, obviously, if, if Mars is closest to the Sun, when we have opposition, opposition is, is when the Sun, Earth, and uh, Mars are, are in line. In other words, when, when Earth and Mars are closest together. Um, and this year, we had an exceptionally favorable opposition um, where Earth and, and Mars were at one of their closest points. And you can see up here the relative size of Mars compared with the opposition in, in 2025. So over the coming years, every two years, when the Earth catches up with um, Mars, uh, we have opposition. So unlike the outer planets, where, where the Earth catches up with those slow-moving outer planets, uh, we, we only really have um, good observing opportunities for Mars every two years. But we have a significant change in the size of Mars as it, um, as it rotates in its orbit. Uh, the axial tilt of Earth is the prime driver for our seasons. When, when the southern hemisphere is pointed towards the sun, we obviously have southern summer and, um, and northern winter. And when the Earth is on the other side of the sun, uh, we have the northern hemisphere pointing towards the sun, which gives us our northern summer and uh, our southern winter. Again, interestingly enough, Mars has a very similar axial tilt to, um, to Earth. Earth is tilted over at 23.5, Mars is tilted over at 25.2. So naturally, Mars is going to have very similar seasons to what we, what we have on Earth. The only fact is that they, they are um, highlighted or multiplied, if you want, by the fact that we have this elliptical orbit. The atmosphere of, of Mars is, is toxic to, to humans, uh, primarily 96% carbon dioxide and a number of, of small amounts of inert um, gases, argon and, and nitrogen, um, with some trace, trace elements. Um, so obviously that's a, a major factor with, with, um, with our, the first humans going to, to Mars. Um, and the, sorry, that's actually incorrect. Uh, it's not 100% less dense on Earth. It's 100 times less dense than on Earth, the atmosphere of, of Mars. So it's an exceptionally thin atmosphere, which to some extent is quite amazing that it's able to retain the dust during the dust storms in the atmosphere. But um, we'll come to that later as well. Gravity on, on uh, Mars is one third of that on Earth um, and about twice of that on the, the Moon. If you recall the images of the, the uh, astronauts on the, the Moon and how they were bouncing around, 
on Mars, we're going to be halfway between that and what we have on, on Earth. Uh, Mars has got two small, not small, these are tiny uh, moons. And it's pretty much accepted that there's, they're, they're very small asteroids that have been captured by the, the gravity of, of Mars. 22 and 13 across. And again, just to indicate where we are in terms of amateur imaging nowadays, we, we are actually able to image these, um, the, these moons as well. Um, a factor that again impacts on, on Mars weather, similar to on, on Earth, is the extreme altitude um, features that we, we have, uh, such as our, our mountains. Um, two that I want to highlight are the Hellas Basin, which is uh, the largest visible impact crater in the solar system, visible from Earth. Um, this crater is, is 2,000 kilometers across and 7,000 meters deep. Um, it's, it's located very close to the South Polar Cap, and as a result, um, this basin basically generates its own weather systems, and it's well known as a trigger point for, for dust storms. Uh, one of the other features that I mentioned already is, is the giant volcanoes on, on Mars. This is Olympus Mons, uh, 600 meters across, uh, 600 kilometers across, and 22,000 meters high and it naturally generates its own weather systems. Um, right, the, some, a little bit on the, the detailed weather on, on Mars. On, on Earth, we have these wind systems, the polar cell, the feral, and the Hadley cells at the equator, where we get wind circulation um, driven by pressure and, and temperature on the Earth. So for example, at the equator, the warm equator, we have hot air rising and then circulating away from the equator and then coming back down again. We have a very similar system on, on Mars, but much more simplistic, where we have a single um, Hadley cell, where in the warm hemisphere we have, have the gases rising and then circulating down. And this naturally produces a, a surface wind um, from the cold section to the, the warm section. Similarly, we have the polar cells um, here. Second factor that impacts the winds on, on Mars is exactly the same as on Earth, the rotation of the planet, which causes winds in the, in the east-west direction. Uh, indication of temperatures, uh, these are two different data sets. This one up at the top is from Spirit rover, and the one on the bottom is Gale Crater, which is where the Curiosity rover is. Um, not widely different. Um, you can see here, probably best look at the degree C. So in fact, during the, the summer period, we had quite balmy weather at, at, um, at between 20, 30 degrees C. Uh, and in Curiosity, uh, uh, or sorry, at, um, at Gale Crater, we, we only got up to 20. Um, but what we do see is because of the thin atmosphere, um, we get huge swings from day to, to night. So we can typically be up at uh, 20 degrees C during the day in summer, but we're still dropping down to close to minus 80 degrees C at night. An intense um, temperature swing. Um, the polar caps are, are fascinating, and again, these are features that we can monitor as, as planetary images, and we see, often we see these uh, type of indentations in our images. Um, but the polar caps have a significant impact on, on the weather conditions as well. There's substantial water in both the north and the, the south polar caps. Um, I mentioned that the winter in the south is, um, is much more lengthy and extreme because the, the planet is, is further away from the, the sun. So, so the south polar cap has both um, a water base, or, sorry, an ice base, which is a few kilometers thick, um, but it also has a permanent CO2 dry ice uh, layer as well. The, uh, the North Polar Cap um, can, um, is, is primarily ice, but during the winters, both the North and the South uh, Polar Caps <coughs> develop a, a relatively thin layer of, of dry ice. And these, uh, the polar caps are responsible for what we call the CO2 cycle. Um, what, what happens is that during the, um, the northern uh, summer, uh, this is the north down, down here, 
uh, we get not evaporation, we get sublimation of both uh, CO2, gas, and, uh, and water vapor. Um, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is, is so low that the ice uh, does not go through a water phase before it goes to, 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 to vapor. So we refer to sublimation rather than ev evaporation or, or boiling. And um, as, the, uh, as the vapor evaporates, it starts moving south um, and we see the, the clouds of both CO2 and water vapor um, as they move towards the, uh, the winter season in the, in the south. And we're able to monitor this, this, um, these cloud formations on a, on a regular basis. Um, just out of interest, uh, this is actually Olympus Mons, and um, mountains on Earth, as they push uh, moist air upwards in the atmosphere, it obviously cools. And that's why on the high mountains we get uh, these orographic um, cloud formations, and that's actually orographic cloud over Olympus Mons. There's three other vol big volcanoes here, uh, which also have those clouds over them. Right, the dust storms. Um, when I got that uh, image of, of what I refer to as my dust storm, um, that, that's actually it here. But um, Mellon Space Science System sent me a, a global map of Mars from that day as well. And uh, they just highlighted that um, there were six other small dust storms um, on Mars that day. And most of these are missed because they're so small. Um, but obviously from the orbiters, we, they're, they're able to, to pick them up. So this was outside of the, the dust storm season. So what we know is that on a day-to-day -day basis on Mars, um, throughout the year, there's these small dust storms that are, are taking place. Um, and typically they're, they're of these small, um, small sizes. Um, that's just the dust storm that I showed you a little bit early. But uh, one, when I started imaging, uh, within a couple of months, I, um, I actually caught this uh, string of images over four days. Um, and it, it turned out to, in fact, be the first dust storm that I, I had personally picked up. Um, it was outside of the dust storm season. And I was a little bit taken aback when the British Astronomical Association put out a worldwide alert um, for images to try and support um, my observations. But I was able to track over four days. You can see on, on the 30th of June, there, were, there was no activity in this region. Um, as I say, this hasn't come out too well on the projector. But uh, on the 1st of July, there was quite a condensed bright spot here. Um, and then over the following two days, it, it basically enlarged but dissipated in an intensity. And this is typically what the small dust storms um, do. Um, you get a, a concentrated active area and then it gradually dissipates over the space of a couple of days. Very, uh, very usual behavior. Um, now sometimes these small dust storms can expand and instead of just dissipating, they actually gather, gather energy. And in fact, this year towards the end of May, um, that's exactly what happened. On the 8th of June, this is an image um, that was taken, and, and in fact, uh, already the storm had in, initiated just around the, the side of the planet here, but it had not impacted on Sirtis Major, the Hellas Basin you can see up here, and the, um, and the, the South Polar Cap. But within a month, that storm had grown to extend across the whole planet. Um, there's various levels of dust storm. You've got the localized one that we've just seen. It can go regional, which covers a larger area. It can go planet encircling, where the, the dust goes around the planet, but doesn't totally blanket the planet. And then we've got the global storms, which this year we experienced. Um, I mentioned that this was a very favorable opposition where we would have, where we were all lining up to get incredible images of Mars um, in its largest format. And we ended up taking images like this as amateurs. So it, it was a little bit of a disappointment from that perspective. But having said that, we were also able to track the development and also eventually the recovery of the planet 
from the um, from the dust storm, and it's still recovering at this point in time. But a lot of the major features are are visible again. Sadly, we have this little character who's um, located just round about here, and um, it was actually very close to the um, the initiation point of the the dust storm, and. By the 10th of June, uh, in fact, before the 10th of June, they uh, they put the rover into emergency shutdown. It's driven by solar panels, and um, obviously the concern was that it wasn't or it was going to be severely negatively impacted with the dust um, preventing solar energy getting to the rover. So they basically put it in emergency mode in the hope that once the sky started clearing, the um, the rover would recover. Sadly, the latest reports I've seen from about a day ago indicate that the rover has still not uh, recovered um, and they've basically given it until the end of January to sh and if it hasn't recovered by then and started sending signals, uh, they're basically closing the mission. Very sad as uh, Opportunity uh, landed in 2004 with the objective of having a 90-day mission three months. Four, 14 years later, this little character has still been doing science on, on Mars. Uh, that, that is engineering of note. Uh, so I certainly hope that in these next, uh, next few months, uh, this little character comes back to life. Right, just to, to wrap up. Um, I started off saying that we're living in amazing times. We, we are, to be able from our own back gardens as amateur planetary images to monitor weather systems taking place on, on other planets, whether it's Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Um, it, it is indeed the, the golden age. Um, here we can see cloud fronts uh, that, have, that, that move over the space of a couple of days. Um, we've got a jet stream carrying some dust up, up here. Uh, you've got the, the, the polar caps that are changing on a regular basis. Um, Whenever I get any of these planets coming on my screen, um, I'm just waiting to see what is happening. Uh, you, you're looking at a planet in real time and seeing this level of, of detail. Um, ah, that's just a quick one of, of the system that, um, that I've got. I've got a roll-off roofer assembly. Uh, that's a scope that I installed in 2014, which really triggered my planetary interest. Um, this is just a workstation in, in the observatory with the standard equipment such as a glass of white wine. <laughs> and then just to close off, um, I've got two images, uh, comparison images. This is from 2016, uh, about 10 days apart, but the orientation of Mars was the same for the two. This was an image taken by Hubble Space Tel Telescope, and this was the one that was taken from, um, from our back garden. Um, and you can see a lot of the the features are very, very similar. Obviously, the cloud has changed a little bit in, in those days. This is where Opportunity Rover is sitting. Um, and then this was the, uh, the same images. This is, uh, this is Hubble Space Telescope, and this is my image taken a few days apart um, of Mars from this apparition about a month and a half back. Um, and obviously, the, the view of Mars is the same as... Um, as this one. Um, so this was in the height of the um, height of the dust storm. Um, so, but already we, we're seeing uh, much more detail appearing back on on Mars. Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd. Have time for a few questions? Any questions? Yes. Will a hydrogen filled balloon run around on the surface of Mars or will it fly to the ground? Will the hydrogen balloon float? Uh, I haven't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Oh, look, you've got very low atmospheric pressure. Yes, it does. No, you see, I want to t uh, sample these clouds to see how much water they are for my oxygen. Yeah, my, my, my gut feel says that it would rise. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
You'd have to calculate it. It's actually pressure well, gradient. Well, yeah, and also you've got the the, the um, it's obviously a CO two atmosphere. Mm. And the hydrogen is lighter than CO two. No, you'd have to do the balloons float because of the pressure gradient in the atmosphere. Mm. And the pressure gradient in the Martian atmosphere is very much less, even though the gas is much denser. So we'll have to do the no, calculation. Well this you, we have to find out if I interesting <laughs> 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 question. I have to do a calculation when I get back. Any other questions? Yes. Um, you said the dust storm is now getting less and less and the transparency is getting more. How would you describe it in general? If, uh, how much one should one be able to see on the planet now compared to what we yeah. should see if there's no dust no, storm? They, they, they refer, NASA referred to uh, a reading what they call TAR. Yeah, okay. What, and, what and, are they and, saying? Because and, I cannot... and, and typically, with a clear atmosphere, you're looking at, uh, at one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it tower around about one. And what happened as the dust storm kicked in very rapidly in the region of Opportunity Rover, it went to above 10. And um, so the rover was, it, it was basically dark. And um, where we are now, um, in, in fact, they said that when the tower got down back down to 1.5, they were starting the clock in, in terms of uh, allowing a certain time to get all of Opportunity again. And that clock started ticking on Wednesday. So that means we are down at 1.5. 1.5, so we, we well, we're well back. And, and I can see I'm imaging almost every evening at the moment. And the details that we're seeing are pretty much all starting to come back. Any other questions? I have a question. <coughs> you showed us an image of Hellas, crane of Hellas. Yes. 300 kilometers, 700 kilometers across. And Six uh, six thousand kilometers across, and seven thousand yeah. meters deep. Yeah, now, that's very large, but <clears throat> still quite well defined. Yes. So is that because of lack of erosion or what? I mean, something like that on Earth would have liked freedom for dome would have just virtually disappeared. Yeah, you've got you've got the, the the northern islands, which are the sorry the southern islands, because I mentioned that the the water was all in the yeah. northern hemisphere. So the indication is that there may well be water in the southern hemisphere, but to a much lesser extent, probably a little bit of rain. And you can see rib, you know, indications that there have been rivers and, and, and such like. But I think it was just such a huge impact crater. Um, but it's interesting because we see dust activity in, in Alice on a almost on an ongoing basis it, it's the first place where you see where you see dust activity so you would expect to some extent a, a significant amount of erosion but it's there yeah thank you very much yes how accurate was the science in the film the Martian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had a bit of fun because one of my images showed basically the region where he, he had landed and, and uh, in fact um Acidalia, which is where the it supposedly originally landed, that that's exactly the area where the dust storm initiated here. So there was a little bit of a connection there. Um, but the the indication is that the winds, you know, him getting blown all over the show, the atmosphere is too thin, and the indication is even with hundred kilometer winds on Mars, you're hardly going to feel it. So there was, there was little aspects like that that were obviously inaccurate. I enjoyed the movie, and and I once did a, an image of mine showing the actual track all the way to across to Chaparelli Crater, and because you can you can pick up Chaparelli Crater, and that's where he took off from. So interesting. Here you go. And the and the potholes the. Movie, they, they found a, a, a bottomless pothole with ice at the bottom. Is that possible? <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing just in the last two weeks has been an announcement uh, based on research that below the South Polar Camp, um, about one and a half meters deep, it appears that they've identified a potential water lake. <coughs> Now, there's been a lot of discussion, and obviously it's, 
there's going to be more research required, but they are indicating that that is potentially the first water lake in liquid form that we've discovered on, on Mars. It's obviously a kilometre and a half deep, um, but about 22 kilometres across, I, I, I believe. But that's that's literally hot off the press, press research. Um, but what uh, a lot of the data has pointed to is subsurface ice. Um, so to drill down and pick up ice, convert to water, that is that is definitely an option for for humans when they get to, to Mars. Okay, very many thanks, Clyde. Welcome to Mission Update for December 2018 on the Urban Astronomer Podcast. I'm Klemanga and I will be your host for this part of the show. Coming up on Mission Update, White Knuckle Ride to the Surface of Mars, NASA's InSight mission successfully touches down on the Red Planet. OSIRIS-REx arrives at near-Earth asteroid Bennu and Soyuz MS-11 launches without a hitch to the International Space Station and Russian ISS crew missions are back on the horse. This and more on the December mission update on the Urban Astronomer podcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. 2, 1, 0, and liftoff of the Urban Astronomer mission update. NASA's Mars InSight lander safely landed on the Red Planet on November 26th. Standing by for parachute deploy. Radio science reports sudden change in Doppler. Ground stations are observing signals consistent with parachute deploy. Marco Alpha, Marco Bravo, maintain lock status. Telemetry shows parachute deployment. Radar powered on. separation commanded. We have radar activation where the radar is beginning to search for the ground. Once the radar locks on the ground and inside is about one kilometer above the surface, the lander will separate from the back shell and begin terminal descent using its 12 descent engines. Altitude convergence, the radar has locked on the ground. Yes. <laughs> Standing by for lander separation. Carrier interruption on Marco Alpha and Marco Bravo. Lander separation commanded, altitude 600 meters, gravity turn, altitude 400 meters, 300 meters, 200 meters, 80 meters, 60 meters, 50 meters, constant velocity, 37 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, 17 meters, standing by for touchdown. Touchdown confirmed. The probe was launched aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California on May 5th. The progress of the EDL or entry, descent and landing of InSight was monitored by MARCO or Mars Cube 1, A and B, two CubeSats that were launched with InSight and were traveling alongside the main spacecraft. The proof-of-concept interplanetary CubeSats were used as communication relays providing a steady flow of data from the descending lander. The landing on Leash in Planitia brings the number of NASA's successful landings on the Red Planet up to eight. Over the next two years, the lander will investigate with its international science payload the interior of Mars and hopefully help to solve some of the mysteries of the Red Planet. 2018 is the year of the near-asteroid missions. After JAXA's Hayabusa 2, NASA's OSIRIS-REx has safely arrived at its target asteroid Bennu on December 3rd, American time. 
It's just to remind you that we're live here at Lockheed Martin and we are just about to arrive at the asteroid Bennu and begin proximity operations to study this asteroid, eventually returning a sample back to Earth. After this burn is completed, we're going to be approximately seven kilometers away from Bennu. So how much time do we have now? It looks like we have about 40, 40 seconds or so before we start seeing the actual, the actual burn. All stations, stand by. Burn has started. Stand by for Bennu arrival. We have arrived. First detail images got mission managers and scientists excited about things to come. OSIRIS-REx will now begin operations to carefully map and study the surface of Bennu and hopefully determine Bennu's composition and physical properties. All this will lead up to the selection of a suitable site on the asteroid to successfully collect a sample in July 2020, which will return to Earth in a sample return capsule in late September 2023. After weeks of investigations and speculation after the aborted launch of Soyuz MS-10 on October the 11th, mission managers at Roscosmos and NASA felt confident that the issues causing one of the strap-on boosters to malfunction were sorted and under control. Therefore, Soyuz MS-11 was on the launch pad in Baikonur, Kazakhstan on December 3rd. The trusty Russian workhorse performed as expected and three members of Expedition 58, Russian Oleg Kononenko, Canadian David Sanjak and American Anne McLean, were safely delivered to the ISS in low Earth orbit. This was certainly the most watched Soyuz launch in a long time and puts positive end to a year filled with problems for the Russian space agency. The ultra-successful Pluto, now turned Kuiper Belt New Horizons mission, is set to arrive at its target Ultima Thule in the morning of New Year's Day 2019. The amazing mission, spearheaded by Chief Plutophile Alan Stern, is planning to fly by the 30-kilometer trans-Neptunian object at a distance of only 3,500 kilometers. Not much is known about Ultima Thule, also known as 2014 MU69, that orbits the Sun every 296 years at an average distance of 44 astronomical units in a nearly circular orbit. An astronomical unit, or AU, is the distance between the Sun and the Earth, or 150 million kilometers, and it will take the signal from New Horizon a little over six hours to reach the excited mission and science managers in their control rooms in Maryland and Colorado. So if you're not too hungover and tired from your New Year's Eve celebrations, tune into the live stream from the New Horizons Control Center and witness another chapter of a truly magnificent mission. Our good friend Elon Musk's SpaceX had their busiest year so far with 20 launches completed at the time of the recording and two more to come until the end of December. During the last launch of CRS-16 to the International Space Station on December 6th, the Cargo Dragon capsule was safely delivered to orbit as planned, but the return of the first stage booster to its designated landing site at Cape Canaveral did not go totally to plan. It seems that a hydraulic problem caused one or more of the titanium grid fins on the booster to malfunction resulting in an uncontrollable spin. The rocket touched down softly in the shallow water away from the landing pad and subsequently tipped over. After the landings of the first stage boosters almost have become a routine for SpaceX, this malfunction is the first hiccup for Elon Musk's rocket company in a long time. In the coming days, SpaceX engineers will recover the booster and investigate the issues that led to the malfunction of the grid fins. And finally, let us have a brief look at the scheduled launches for the rest of December 2018. As reported in November's mission update, China's slightly secretive space agency has scheduled a launch of its lunar lander Chang'e 4 on top of a Long March 3B rocket on December 8th Australian time. Chang'e 4 will be China's second lunar lander and rover, and the mission is especially noteworthy as it's the first attempt of a soft landing on the far side of the moon. 
The planned landing site is the 180-kilometer diameter von Kármán crater in the South Pole Aitken Basin of the Moon. As communication with the spacecraft once on the surface on the far side of the Moon is not possible from Earth, China uses a communications relay satellite. The COM satellite named Qichao, or Magpie Bridge, is since June of this year in a halo orbit around the L2 Earth-Moon Lagrange point providing uninterrupted data exchange between the lander and Earth. The lander has apart from a camera suite, a German-built neutron and dosimeter experiment on board investigating dosimetry for long-term human exploration of the Moon. The rover carries a panoramic camera, ground-penetrating radar, a near-infrared spectrometer and a Swedish-built analyzer for neutral atoms on the lunar surface. All in all, a very exciting mission that unfortunately does not receive the attention in the media it deserves. Apart from the Chinese mission, the rest of December 2018 is jam-packed with launches and these are the highlights. The U.S. National Reconnaissance Office launches NROL-71 aboard a United Launch Alliance Delta Heavy from Vandenberg Air Force Base on December 8th. Rocket Lab, after its successful launch of its business time last month, has a busy launch schedule ahead and plans to launch 10 CubeSats as part of a Venture-class launch services contract for NASA from its New Zealand launch site on December 13. SpaceX has scheduled the launch of GPS-3A satellite atop a Falcon 9 Block 5 from the Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral on December 19th, but it remains open if the launch will go ahead following the booster issue on the recent ISS CRS-16 launch. And finally, the Indian Space Agency is launching a communications satellite for the Indian Air Force on December 19th from its Satish Dhawan Space Center north of Chennai. Okay, and this brings us to the end of the December edition of Mission Update on the Urban Astronomer podcast. If you like the show, give your Urban Astronomer podcast team a rating on iTunes, Stitcher or whichever podcast platform you prefer. As always, Urban Astronomer Alan and myself are keen on your feedback and you can contact us via Facebook, Twitter and the Urban Astronomer website. And as always, you'll find the links in the show notes of this podcast. I'm Clem Unger and until next time, look up at the sky, not your smartphone, and bye for now.